Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. Episode 44, A Slip Disc in the Spine of Community. The title from this episode comes from a lyric from the frightened rabbit song State Hospital off of their 2012 album Pedestrian Verse. And overall, not a whole lot to say for this episode. In general, it felt like I read less in the past two weeks, but school has restarted and is quite busy. And reviewing the books I did read in the past two weeks, I think it was just a harder choice of choosing the five I'd want to discuss or promote. But I was able to do that. So we'll get to those now. So our first featured book is The End of Bias, A Beginning. It was written by Jessica Nordell, a white American writer. She attended MIT and received a BA in physics from Harvard. She earned, went on to earn a certificate in visual arts from the Minneapolis College of Art and Design and an MFA in poetry from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. From 2003 to 2005, she was a staff comedy writer for a Prairie Home Companion. Her essays have appeared on the New York, in the New York Times, Slate, Salon, The New Republic, and The Washington Post. For the past decade, her work has focused on issues related to prejudice and discrimination. I came across this book by entering a Goodreads giveaway, and I won an advanced reader copy. So the end of bias focuses on implicit bias, persistent, unintentional, prejudiced behavior that clashes with our consciously held beliefs. We know that it exists to corrosive and even lethal effect. We see it in medicine, we see it in finance, and as we know from the police killings of so many black Americans, bias can be deadly. But are we able to step beyond recognition of our prejudice to actually change it? With 15 years immersion in the topic, Jessica Nedell digs deep into the cognitive science, socio social psychology, and developmental research that underpin current efforts to eradicate unintentional bias and discrimination. That section coming directly from one of the book's official descriptions. So overall, a wonderful and timely book that moves beyond just diagnosis of the problem. So it's quite clear in that description that implicit bias, or bias in general, has very negative effects on society as a whole. Here, Nordell presents focused cases of those, and then, again, as the title suggests, actually shows different strategies that researchers or community members have used to combat these biases. The book itself is divided into three sections that first defines the problem, then describes how to recognize, and then finally offers numerous situational ways to resolve or address bias. And these include different strategies, workflows, structural policies, or personal mental practices that can work to upend or lower the impact of biases and are described and explained. So this work draws extensively from academic publications, research studies, personal experience, investigative journalism, and interviews, showing a great depth of knowledge and understanding. In the conclusion, Nordell discusses her writer's journey from initially having this be yet another publication of science journalism that she has written in wide, widely to its current form as a journey of self-reflection. 
On page 273 in the version of the book I had, Nordell traces this path, making sure to note, quote, the most essential part of this journey was making and learning from mistakes, close quote. And that key point is where we often lose people in their initial defensive reaction. By working on an individual level, we can change the way we think, and the more of us willing to do this and undertake the process, the greater the possibility of society as a whole changing. It is only with wider support that we can make systematic changes to address the inequalities of our contemporary society. Shortly before beginning to record for this episode, I finished reading a book about the technology industry, and it was glaring in comparison to this just how privileged that industry is to have all these young 20-some people pursuing careers there, often focused around apps to get rich, possibly with their goal of changing the world, but only as reflected through their work. Book two is The Ice Pick Surgeon, Murder, Fraud, Sabotage, Piracy, and Other Dastardly Deeds Perpetrated in the Name of Science. It is written by Sam Keane, a white American writer. His stories have appeared in the Best American Science and Nature Writing, for which he has also served as an editor for some volumes, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Slate, and Psychology Today. His work has also been featured on several NPR shows. And in his unofficial bio, he lists that he earned a master's degree in library science somewhere in Washington, D.C. I came across the ice pick surgeon as featured in Book Pages magazine, and partway through reading it, I realized I had read one of his earlier books, The Disappearing Spoon. The ice pick surgeon, uh, as its official description called, uh, describes, it is the true story of what happens when unfettered ambition pushes otherwise rational men and women to cross the line in the name of science, trampling ethical boundaries and often committing crimes in the process. Guiding the reader across 2,000 years of history, beginning with Cleopatra's dark deeds in ancient Egypt, the book reveals the origins of much of modern science in the transatlantic slave trade of the 1700s, as well as Thomas Edison's mercenary support of the electric chair and the warped logic of the spies who infiltrated the Manhattan Project. But the sins of science aren't all safely buried in the past. Many of them, Keen reminds us, still affect us today. We can draw direct lines from the medical abuses of Tuskegee and Nazi Germany to current vaccine hesitancy and connect ice pick lobotomies from the 1950s to the contemporary failings of mental health care. Keen even takes us into the future when the advanced computers and genetic engineering could unleash whole new ways to do one another wrong. So all of Keen's writing has been aimed to make uh, this scientific understanding more palatable to the wider audiences, and this is no different. Uh, the Ice Pick Surgeon is largely narrative-styled medical scientific history, uh, so this one shares biographies and works of individuals from largely the 1600s onwards. Like any work that is a selective collection of tales from history, one should keep in mind that everything in here was specifically selected because it fit the overall narrative theme Keen was working on. So again, the, the uh, unblocked ambition of scientists that went too far in pursuit of knowledge, um, and many of these are particularly troubling because well, not many, but a few of them are troubling because they take place after the implementation of uh, an understanding of ethical limitations. So this ostensibly claims to cover over 2,000 years of history, but the prologue is a scant entry about the unverifiable rumor about Cleopatra's experimentation with genetics. 
I mean, Keen does make it clear that the evidence is light or non-existent, but by using it uh, to offer a, pre a precursor example of the possible depravities of man, and possibly editor-inspired, I'm not completely sure of this, but to give it that nice little word blurb of the 2,000 years of history by linking it that far back to the Cleopatra's time period, when most of the book is 1600s or later, if we're feeling generous. That aside, it does raise continual important questions about uh, the use of the historic findings, as well as in shaping our current studies and understandings to, to have those institutional review boards that are overseeing the process of deciding which projects get funding, making sure they are ethically sensitive or fitting within the, the clear legal limits. So the question then arises is looking at a lot of the Nazi science experiments, those, well, some of them were, well, really out there. Others were more specifically aimed at the effects of hypothermia on the human body and how to reverse it. So those have clear use still in helping prevent death, but by using them, what does that say about us as a society? And this is particularly important uh, in the end section of the book where Keen explores some questions and thought about where our future is heading. So again, the description, it talks about computers and genetic engineering unleashing whole new ways to do one another wrong. So for, for example, as we travel into space, if a death occurs upon a spaceship, who is responsible? The company that launched it? Perpetrator carried out perhaps murder? And if so, what body enforces that? How do you catch them and punish, punish the wrongdoers, particularly in thinking of the scale of times here? Because if, for those of you who might not have read widely in science or remember from The Martian, the further away you get from Earth, the longer it takes to send messages back and forth. Our third book offers us some considerably lighter fare. So this is, you can only yell at me for one thing at a time. Rules for couples. It is written by Patricia Marks, a white American humorist and writer. She earned a BA from Harvard, and her writing has appeared in the New York Times, New Yorker, Vogue, and Atlantic Monthly. She also wrote for Saturday Night Live and The Rugrats. She has authored several humor books, children's books, and two novels. It has a large amount of uh, illustrations from Ross Chast, who is a white American cartoonist. She is a staff cartoonist for The New Yorker, and since 1978, she has published more than 800 cartoons through that publication. Her work has also appeared in The Scientific American and the Harvard Business Review. She studied at the Rhode Island School of Design and received an MFA in painting in 1977. In 2014, she released her graphic memoir, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, about the final years of the lives of her parents. It was awarded the 2014 National Book Critics Award and the inaugural Kirkus Prize in Nonfiction. It was a finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor and was selected as one of the New York Times Book Review's 10 Best Books of 2014. And if I'd been doing this podcast when I read it, I likely would have featured it. But uh, I do not plan to reread it anytime soon, but if you are looking for graphic memoirs that help you consider the implications and problems of a family as we reach... Uh, or as your parents or possibly loved one are reaching the ends of their lives, it might be worth a read to give you some things to think about.
But you can only yell at me for one thing. I found somewhere online and purchased it for a loved one. It is a short collection of comics with suggested rules for couples and is very much written in a humorous vein. So again, something short and humorous that makes a nice gift for a loved one. Uh, and it is focused on those in long-term relationships. And many of the com comics in it are usually one for every other page, focus on the daily struggles of daily life, cleaning up after the cat, who winds up with the blankets, loading the dishwasher, travel plans, what to discuss on long car trips, those sorts of things. And in the art itself, there, there has been effort made to portray an inclusive world. So couples are straight, biracial, variously aged. Again, a nice little, little humorous book to, to lighten things down after talking about bias and the history of science and medical knowledge. And book four carries through a commonality of love. So book four is This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Mohtar, a Lebanese-Canadian writer, critic, and harpist. She has published short fiction, poetry, essays, and reviews. As of February 2018, she has been reviewing science fiction and fantasy for the New York Book Review. She has also worked as a creative writing instructor at the Carleton University and the University of Ottawa. In 2018, she was a host on Brando Sando, or Brandon Sanderson's, creative writing podcast, Writing Excuses, for the 13th season. Her work has been honored with Hugo, Locus, and Nebula Awards, th three of which she received for this work. It was co-written by Max Gladstone, a white American fantasy author. He is a graduate of Yale where he studied Chinese, and his work has also been awarded a Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Awards. Again, all three of those prizes were received for this this particular book, but they have been both of them have been nominated and received prizes for other works. Goodreads notes his most popular book, as does Wikipedia, as Three Parts Dead, the first in the craft sequence series, currently of six books. I first heard of this as featured on NPR's books. Summer Poll 2021, A Decade of Great Sci-Fi and Fantasy. So the link for that is in the notes, but it was a list of reader-voted science fiction books that was then judged by a panel and assembled into the top 50. By choosing This Is How You Lose the Time War, they, the judge also noted that they were somewhat disappointed in that because then they couldn't use any of Max Gladstone's because they had a rule that you use an author once and not again to give a wider breadth of books. This is How You Lose the Time War is a science fiction uh, epistolary novel. Two, time, two rival time-traveling agents from warring futures exchange hidden letters across time as the respective sides seek victory against each other. And as we saw with our prior book, this one too is short, I think just under 200 pages. But it does have a lot of lovely writing uh, and playing with language. It's a work where you very much only know really what you're told through the perspective of those characters as either shared through a note or some of the other sections are narrated by that particular agent until they discover the letter. And in the way they find the messages are quite clever and creative. So for example, the first one is just found left on a, as a detrius on the battlefield. Others are found uh, by the way water boils, gives off a certain code that the agents are able to translate, or even found in a dead tree. Just, again, I found that part perhaps the most fun and playful. The two main characters are, are named by color. We have Red, 
who is written by Gladstone, who is like a technology-based killing machine. And then we have Blue, who was written by El Motar, who is an agent uh, more powered by like a, a overall garden keeper. And she is one of the, the agents that was grown and, and created. So it points to a potentially much greater world because the snippets we get here sound like a fascinating, fascinating universe where we have, again, a lot of technology and the ability to travel through time. And it talks about the different threads of time. So the, the agents are going to these specific points in time to make sure certain things happen so a future that they want for their side for the best outcomes can occur. And the way the two try and sabotage each other to create their to create or counter the goals of the other side. And our final book of the ep uh, the episode is After Parties Stories. It's, it's by Anthony Visna So, uh, who was a Cambodian American writer. He earned a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from Syracuse University. He taught at Colgate University, Syracuse University, and the Center for Empowering Refugees and Immigrants. Uh, this one I found in my library's new books. And it, it, I also need to note that he did die of an accidental overdose shortly. Well, I think at some point in 2020, uh, where this was book was in the works, uh, and he had also begun work on a novel. So After Parties is a collection of interrelated short stories about the lives of Cambodian Americans in California, particularly the children of refugees carving out new paths for themselves while handling the inherited burdens of the Khmer Rouge genocide and complexities of American life. So across these stories, characters reappear throughout the book, whereas they are first mentioned as perhaps side characters or other people in the orbit of the main characters for one story, and a later story, we get it from their own perspective. So for example, we meet the girlfriend of uh, talking about her relationship with the boy when they're in their teenage years, and then we see in a later story the, the boyfriend's uh, perspective as he goes through a ceremonial uh, time living in a temple to observe the death of his father. And all the main theme, again, throughout all the stories are the focus on families and interactions within them. So we see two drunken brothers hatch a plan at a wedding after party to expose their uncle for snubbing the bride and groom. We see this perspective as a son working with his father in a failing automotive shop while he ref automotive shop while he reflects on the path that led him there and, and looks to try and change his life some of the stories also deal with being gay uh, but without romanticizing it through all phases and acts that occur in a typical relationship here so getting to know one another just hooking up either through app or through quick, quick connections sex uh, so many stories do feature sexual acts, and then learning how to communicate in relationships, setting boundaries and borders and agreements. So for uh, one of the stories, Human Development, is about a 20-something-year-old who has a relationship with a man in his 40s. Out of all the stories featured here, there are some, some excellent ones, or ones that will perhaps draw you in. So it does start with a former high school badminton prodigy trying to live, relive his glory days coaching 
the current group uh, as his grocery store business collapses. But I found the last two stories have stayed with me the longest, and they are Somali Surrey Surrey Somali, uh, narrated by Somali or Mali, as she's referred to in the story, who was earlier mentioned as a baby, but here is a, an adult working, well, overworked as a nurse at an elderly care facility. And she is tasked with, with basically serving as the hospice worker for an elderly relative. And it, it's very focused on the burden of family and the way things get remembered between the generations. And the final work in the, this collection is Generational Differences about the white terrorist school shooting at the Cleveland Elementary School on January 17, 1989. The terrorists targeted this school due to its large population of Southeast Asian refugees, and it's written as a memoir from So's mother to him. And again, just brings us back to the struggle of entering a new culture. How much does one family assimilate versus maintaining traditional life and values? And you could say to some degree the whole collection here talks about that where the younger generation is more American than the one that came before. So we have the original refugee generation, their children, and in some of these stories, we're to the point where we're talking about the grandchildren. So again, showing quite a different scope of experience. And finally, are reading soon or books in progress? So the first one is one I finished actually shortly before I started recording for this week's episode, but I depending what else we read, I am more than likely to talk about for the next episode. It is Life in Code, A Personal History of Technology by Ellen Ullman. Quote, in Life in Code, Ullman presents a series of essays that unlock and explain and don't necessarily celebrate how we got to now, as only she can, with a fluency and expertise that's unusual in someone with her humanistic worldview, and with the sharp insight and brilliant prose that are uniquely her own. Exploring the rise of the internet, the ubiquity of once unimaginably powerful computers, and the thorough transformation of our economy and society, as Ullman's clique of socially awkward West Coast geeks became our new elite. Elevated for and insulated by technical mastery that few could achieve, Life in Code is an essential text towards our understanding of the last 20 years and the next 20. And again, that summary is a slight readaption and reordering of the description on Goodreads. And then the other reading soon book is Goats and Meyer by David Al-Bahari, uh, possibly translated by Elian, Ellen Elias Bursak. I'm not sure if she did the translation for the virgin I, version I have. I will update that accordingly. But this one is, quote, Goats and Meyer, two non-commissioned SS officers are entrusted with an assignment. Not a big one, but one that requires efficiency. Their task is to transport prisoners from a concentration camp near Belgrade in a hermetically sealed truck in which they are asphyxiated. The nameless narrator of Goetz and Meyer, a Jewish school teacher, discovers Wilhelm Goetz and Erwin Meyer while researching the deaths of his relatives. Overwhelmed by the horror of his discoveries as they become entangled with his own feverish imaginings, he organizes a class trip. The school bus becomes Goetzenmeyer's truck, and the teacher and his students merge with Belgrade's lost souls in the sacred act of remembering. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations 
or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.